Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanner. So, let's be friends. Today, we are going to nerd out on F1 broadcasting. But firstly, didn't little Chris do a great job talking to Nico Hulkenberg's trainer? If you missed that, go and check out the show notes. We'll make sure we link back to that. A really interesting delve into the world of being a personal PT and basically PA to an actual F1 driver. But today we're going to nerd out on broadcasting. We're going to take a deep dive into the way we see the vast majority of us see the vast majority of motorsport through a square box in our living room. But we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Uh, we're talking about video, so who better to have on than our video producer, Uncle Steve, Steve Amy. Hello, Steve. Hi there. I'm looking forward to this. It should be a, an interesting dive into the history of Formula One broadcasting. Now, what people might not realise is you're not just a, a grumpy Australian. You do also do so much of the video work here on Missed Apex Podcast. These beautifully designed sets, Steve, are, are all your work, and you have spent the last six years badgering me uh, about video editing video process and the panel you are you're the brad philpot of the video side uh, except i'm not a vegetarian no uh, and brad only eats fruit that has fallen naturally on the ground a lot of people don't realize <laughs> that about brad uh, but, you, but it's, it's been really similar to to brad as my driver expert coach you've been my my video coach so whilst Brad's going, no, take a bit more grass, it doesn't matter. The inside wheel can do that. You're like, that transition was a load of garbage. What are you doing? You've embarrassed yourself, you galah. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> you can easily embarrass yourself. I mean, all yeah. of us can, I suppose. But, yeah, I mean, learning the basics of video is, is so something hard. that takes a bit of time. And, you know, you can't – it's not something you just pick up and immediately get good at. And I think in the context of talking about the F1 broadcast, it is really, really important to remember – that what they're attempting is very, very hard. We are talking oh, like something near like the pinnacle of video and broadcasting skill. Yeah, it's a really complicated process. And the way they've chosen to do it now, uh, and they do it the way they do it these days, is actually a little harder, but it gives them better control at, you know, in the long run. And it does turn out a better quality product for the whole world. And we are also going to be doing Meet the Panel. So you're going to find out all about Steve's work in television. So he's going to be joined by another person who has low-key, to you non-Danish-speaking people, low-key done an awful lot within media. It's Christian Pedersen. Hey, Christian. Good evening. Not so, good evening. Good day. It is. Yeah, we're well, doing it in the morning to yeah. pander to Steve. Yeah, we're pandering to the Australian time, which means, you know, it's 11 a.m. I can still taste the toothpaste. It's evening for Steve, right? Mm. Yep. Yeah, that is yeah. how the world works, and I don't get it. Yeah, the but world anyway. is absolutely yeah. crazy. Uh, people in different places experience different things, and I'm really looking forward to the Meet the Panel with you as well, Christian, because the UK viewers know you as a sultry-voiced and handsome Viking giving your opinions, uh, but in, the, in, the, in Denmark, <laughs> you were a bit of a, a 90s Anton Deck, unable to even go on a simple boat ride without fans of swarms of fans. I'm not sure if the and and deck was the right um, uh, comparison, but I'll take it. I, I know I gave it to you, but I just had to put something in there. Yeah, well, uh, the, in that, yeah. their career has continued going up towards the, the yeah, 20s. Yeah, that is where yeah. I differ. <laughs> That's fair enough. Uh, but you definitely have a lot of experience in media and broadcasting. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get these two to talk through the history of Formula One and also the future of Formula One broadcasting interlaced with some of the amazing listener feedback we've got and if you don't mind gentlemen I, I want to start with the positive so i'm going to get a comment from from jose in our patron slack chat who says every time i watch an american race indycar championship or daytona 24 hour and I, I want you all to remember jose said this not me yeah i get a renewed appreciation of how awesome the f1 broadcasts are in comparison so I think Jose's got a point in which we, we absolutely take F1 broadcasting for granted. So I want to take it in that context. And Karen also added, um, uh, whilst there's lots of areas to improve, I want to acknowledge how far it's come. I think the biggest reason I didn't get into the sport deeply as a child is because uh, I watched my dad get very frustrated with the scrolling timings for the drivers. I would stare intensely waiting to see how the drivers I cared about would be doing and then they wouldn't come up. So when I first started watching on Drive to Survive and I saw they had even something as simple as a permanent tower with all the drivers, I was instantly interested in getting back into it. So not only is the Formula One broadcast great, but it's also come a long, long way. So I think that's a good place to start, Steve. I also <laughs> tuned into the Daytona 24 and I thought exactly the same thing as Jose. Like, th that was a great broadcast, but I went, oh, wow, like F1, it really is good. Yeah, I watched some of the Daytona 24 too. I mean, we've got to, you know, we get it pretty good and we take it for granted, uh, particularly these days. That We take it for granted that on a Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, midnight for me, that we can sit down, watch a race live and 
the same race is being seen by everybody around the world. Now, add to you know that whole thing with you know, which is through satellites and and um, you know instantaneous broadcasting. Add to that the internet, and as you know from our um, Slack group, our F one Slack group, we sit and we watch the race, and we can talk to each other about what's happening and make comments and. Um, I mean, that's a, a level of involvement that was just, you know, inconceivable. Even maybe, you know, even 20 years ago, it was inconceivable. Um, and on top of that, the level of um, the technical prowess that these people, you know, that, that they've brought to the coverage of, of the sport is phenomenal. I mean, it it is instantaneous well it's near enough to instantaneous live coverage all through the world everybody in the world sees sees the same thing um and the coverage is really very good the amount of you know cameras they use the kind of backup graphics and data that is fed to us as well as the the, the pictures of the, the the cars going around is phenomenal these days i mean back when i started watching you saw the cars blurrily on, you know, low resolution, <laughs> yeah. four by three screens. They were colour, but Jesus, only just. And um, the graphics that, that that we had was were awful. You know, you were lucky if you if they put up, you know, the, a graphic with the top three drivers <laughs> in it every so often. Um, and I've got to say that the Formula One guys do it better than anybody else in the world, really. And um, and I think it's only because they have a lot more experience in doing it. They do it not every week, but every you know second week uh, throughout a year for well, what did we what did we have last week? The last year, twenty three races last year. Going to be twenty four this year. So they get lots of practice at it. The American Daytona is on once a year. Um, oh well, Steve, you only have to look at Monaco to go well when there's a broadcast team that that doesn't do it week in week out suddenly you see the the seams straight away and and absolutely not slating the daytona coverage it's just that that made you kind of realize how difficult a thing it was and and how good a job formula one does so it's just it's so hard to follow motorsport um that you know we've we've experienced from trying to set up karting angles uh, for for karting events and for iRacing events to really paint and create that narrative of a story of what's going on on a racetrack is really difficult. I I completely agree with what Steve just said. Um, But I also want to say there's a difference in in a 24-hour race and a sprint race, which is Formula 1. Firstly, Formula 1 is the Super Bowl or the Champions League of engineering, right? That is data-driven. We should get that data. And that is, I mean, Formula One does a brilliant job in providing that data, whereas uh, Daytona or Le Mans or that kind of race is a bit more about what could potentially happen in 12 hours, right? Uh, <laughs> so so the 0.001 difference is maybe not as interesting. But I do want to say that watching a race is... Um, the broadcaster sort of have, has a deal with the viewer these days. Back in the days, the, the broadcaster bought the rights, showed it, everyone was happy. I get to go there, I can see, watch it, and that's it. Nowadays, the viewer has much more demands, and they can go everywhere. So today, you think, yesterday you thought like this, I just need the rights, then I got the money, uh, uh, the board will be happy. 
Nowadays, you think, I need to get the rights and then I have to present it in a way that I get engagement. Mm -hmm. So that's a completely different way in, 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 in producing, I'd argue. And Formula One is just, I mean, they're just uh, way ahead of everyone else. There's going to be a lot of young young people, and we're all old enough, we can complain about the stupid young people. I also want to complain about how Steve says data, because that gets me every time. Data, data, data. data. <laughs> it's just wrong. Uh, yeah, other, how other people speak is funny. So the, the young people will be looking at this going, well, we're just, you know, we've grown up in a world where you have all this information. And you, Steve marveling about, have, have you heard the, the internet? You can all talk to each other. So obviously for some people, they will have landed in this world with all that stuff already existing. Now we are all, uh, shall I just say we're all over 42 and, you know, we remember the, the golden times of not really knowing what was going on. And that Karen, Karen's point with the graphics was, was really on point. If you were lucky, you would get uh, P4 in the left side of the screen, P5, and then in a big graphic, you'd see, oh, uh, 0.5 gap. But you, you couldn't really paint that narrative of what was going on up and down the track. Whereas now, when you've got the live timings and that timing tower, you can see the whole race. And so whilst there's still areas and suggestions uh, where where they could improve and we've got some great listener suggestions the the, the picture of the race is so much more now steve oh yeah uh, and there's more to be told now than there was before you know the cars are faster closer there's more at stake um so you know the ability to be able to pull data out i mean it's got to be relevant uh, you know the, the sorry i'm not going to change the way i say fine it. fine but the ability to be able to pull that data out <clears throat> and display it in a way that uh, helps augment the viewer's um, you know, experience without getting in the way and cluttering things is a real secret in itself. And Formula One these days, I think, does a pretty good job. Um, you know, there'll be lots of people who criticise some of the graphics that we've seen recently, you know, like tire wear graphics and you know over, uh, and the, the worst one <laughs> overtake is, um, will happen overtake will happen in you know the the next three laps and that sort of thing was but you've got to give it was f1 doing the one where it was close the distance to the barrier was that f1 where they, they it was an aws graphic i'm sure that was yes a, it was i'm sure it was yes yeah, it we, was we, we don't need uh, that, that one that, that was during the yeah, during the last year um but they're trying things they will often see them try that, like the, how close to the wall there was, and it'll disappear in a couple. You know, it'll stay for two races, and then it'll disappear because they've figured out that that's not working for them. They're not, they're not hanging on, hanging on to things that aren't working. So, I mean, we've got to be thankful for that. I mean, there are lots of other criticisms we can make of the what the graphics display we've got these days, but they keep trying things and they are honing it down, and it is getting better each year. Hmm. And yeah, and we're lucky to get to the point where we can take it for granted. I want to pick Steve's brains about the history of F1 broadcasting and then move on to the future. I'm not saying you're the past and Christian's the, the future of Miss Apex. Don't <laughs> interpret it like that. But I, I think let's just let's just start off with a little bit on the, the graphics and the presentation from from some listener questions. So a big criticism you've led us into this, Steve, is the, the way the facts are presented to you. Most of the comments, literally most of the comments, were about showing the replays at the start. So Barry says, 
please don't show the replays a million times at the start, just as DRS is enabled, or, or for goodness sake, split screen the start replays. Uh, Christian says the same. Uh, Where's Adam? Loads of people chiming in that they're infuriated yeah. with this uh, multi-replay. I've, re- I, I've read them. Um, and I've got to say one thing. A lot of people were saying... F1 TV does it well. They do it with, you know, PIP, picture in picture, whenever they're showing um, replays and whenever they're showing um, re, re showing the start. I've also got to point out, and, and they were criticising, you know, Sky and saying, well, why can't Sky do that? Now, I've got to say that you've got to remember that once the race starts, Sky have the same feed as everybody else in the world, and that is supplied by Formula One. So Formula One are being greedy and keeping this picture-in-picture ability for their own F1 TV, and they are not implementing it on on the world feed. They could do that, but they want to give their F1 TV broadcast a little bit of something extra. I, I actually didn't know this, and I'm enraged. So if you're watching on F1 TV, you do get that picture-in-picture picture as standard. You, you get pic, you get picture-in-picture picture pretty standard. When and that's, that's chosen by the director, not as a, as a feature that you can select. Yeah. And the rest, of the, the rest of the world gets the world feed, which is fed out of Biggin Hill by F1, and we take it or leave it. And yeah. they keep the cream for themselves. So you have a product... And that product, to get that product out to the buyer, you have to use a middleman, right? That could be Viaplay, that could be Sky, that could be whoever. That is the Bernie way of doing it back in the days. That was was what Bernie created, which yep. Steve will get it back to. Uh, but how about if you could just cut out the middleman? Oh, then you can just I, present it yourself and you do that best by doing making a product where people have to go and buy your product directly. And that is by yep. giving them a little mm. bit more in the F1 TV Pro package. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, and when Liberty got involved and, decided, and they announced that they were going to have F1 TV, we all figured that what would happen with Sky and with Foxtel here in Australia... Um, and with uh, being, you know, in Asia and, and uh, Middle East, that they would all not have their contracts renewed and that eventually F1 TV would be released to the whole world. Well, now that hasn't happened because recently um, F1 has renewed the contracts of Sky through to uh, 2030. Similarly for Foxtel, I don't know what the expiry dates of uh, VN are in Asia, but they will be similarly, you know, fairly long range. So what they're really saying is you people in Australia, England, I mean, it applies to Italy, Germany, and probably most of Europe, I would think, is that, you know, you, you will take what we give you and that will be a slightly second-rate um, uh, presentation. If we could get F1 TV Pro, I'd do it tomorrow. But unfortunately, because of the Foxtel uh, contract down here, we can't get it as an app uh, you know, that we can use. Which is uh, someone to blame for. That is Bernie, which leads us to Steve. <laughs> well, 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 hang on. Bernie was originally to blame. I'll certainly yeah, agree with that. But... It was Liberty that uh, have renewed all the contracts for Foxtel TV down here and Sky TV in you know, England and Europe. So 
if, if they wanted to do the right thing and, and broadcast, you know, uh, a, a greater, um, you know, set of data and stuff to the rest of the world, why did they uh, renew those contracts? I'm, I have the answer for that, uh, at least part of the answer. And that has to do with uh, the way the contracts was constructed back in the days and, and for how long you, you sign up for and what's in the contracts, basically. So Bernie, uh, no one would do a contract with Bernie if they didn't have, um, if they weren't offered the next contract as the first partner, for instance, that could be a part of a contract, right? And uh, if they want F1 TV Pro in, in your area, uh, that contract would still have 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 it would have to have some benefits when you think of like that big of a, uh, a commercial uh, uh, competitor coming into your market. So Fox would um, and 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 this is this is the way it works in the big uh, big brands, right? Fox Viaplay here is doing it. Sky in the UK, they have so much power and they are so so much on the market that this is the basis. Of their entire business, and we can see it with Viaplay in in Holland, um, Denmark, uh, Norway, and Sweden. I think maybe even Finland. I'm not sure. Uh, they <laughs> they there's big problems in this company. Uh, I think the the share is about a tenth right now, uh, and they have uh, issues. They are firing people, and this is the product of 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 um, how do you call it? Basically, catfishing people getting them to sign up for something that is not really what it's supposed to be. And that is what happening in your country. It's all in the contract. And I'm, I've read this. Um, I haven't read it said in one line, but I've heard Liberty people saying this between the lines several times. The end goal is to be free of these contracts, but it's going to take at least 10 years to get around these old contractual uh, obligations, I'm pretty sure. I knew you two were the right people for this topic. I didn't realise how nerdy you were about international F1 TV contracts and, and we're only starting to scratch the surface here. I, I will circle back to uh, the, the point the listeners were making about the picture-in-picture. Picture. I appreciate your segue, Christian, yeah, and I know you've done a lot of uh, radio at a much higher level than I have and you've been on TV and you've been an international superstar DJ, but this is my shed, okay? Only uh, I, okay, I'll beg off. <laughs> only I segue to Steve here. Christian, right. So the picture-in-picture picture was a very, very deliberate... Sorry, the replays were a very deliberate feature. So I was part of a, invited as part of a press junket to a, a Liberty Media thing on the, the future of broadcasting. And I think it was all a big push when AWS was a, a partner. And so I, I get on this call, and it's a very boring Italian journalist before me on the virtual press junket. And then I, I, I'm face-to-face with a very famous... I won't name him, but he used to be Massa's race engineer on on the call with me. And I'm like, oh, um, you know, Spanner's Missed Apex podcast. Uh, we've got 15 minutes to talk about such and such. And he went, oh, is it? it's a podcast, is it? And he looked left and right, like so surprised because podcasts don't get invited on those press junkets or they never used to. And he said, so am I on a podcast now? And I went, is that okay, sir? And he's, so he's like, oh, okay. So he was, I don't think they were doing any podcast appearances at that time. But he leaned into it and he was he was fine. But he was at length talking about how it was a really big push from Liberty to give you information and access to information that you'd never had before, like really overload it. So things like reaction times. Do you remember that? That didn't last long. But they used to do 
driver reaction times uh, at the lights. And then the big thing they were so proud of was the replays. So it was a deliberate thing to go, we are going to show you the start replay because that's the most exciting bit. We'll wait for things to settle down and then replay, replay, replay. And I think if you'd have done that to a 90s audience, I think we'd have been actually really happy with that, the chance to sit and pick apart the replay. Because we used to go, ah, it's turn one and now nothing's happened. But we're a bit more educated now. And I think now if we if we look at the live timing during the first stint of a race, we can try and pick apart what they're doing. We can go, ah, they're tyre saving. Oh, they're pushing to try and get that place. Oh, he's out of position. So we understand all that stuff now. And the modern audience, Steve, is infuriated to be taken away from that to watch the start replay at that point. Yeah, and they usually drop the replay in just as DRS comes into yeah. count. So that's when, you know, hey, there's a whole new level of interest in there. The cars are still close together. They've only done a couple of laps. DRS comes on and they cut to the you know replay of the start. And I have nothing against replaying the start, but put it in picture in picture in picture for the whole world, not just for F1 TV. I think it's important to notice that uh, in in as you know, Steve, in in TV production, well, in any kind of production, every decision. Um, is a choice, right? So at some point you have to show the replay, but when do you do it? So I used to work on a lot of like big live shows, like, uh, you know, when you you collect money for cancer research or whatever on primetime TV. And when you do these shows, they are one-offs and uh, you have to get a producer doing the picture, work with someone doing the sound and maybe 10 camera feeds and then you have all the graphics and stuff. And it's all like a big mixture of things that has to work together. And when you get it to work, it's look, it looks uh, brilliant, right? But when you do it on a Formula One basis where you do 24 a year, you get into a rhythm, right? You, you, you sort of like build up a system where where does what work? And that is why we see something that is being perfected in every race. It just gets better and better. But the, the replay... You have to, at some point, make it, take a decision and say, we, we have to show the replay, but when? And I think this is something that is under constant evaluation. Where do you put it? Do you put it picture in picture? Do you, where do you put it? Yeah. Well, you can show the replay at any time you like if you do it picture in picture because you're not going to be cutting out what's happening on the track at the same time. I agree. I think I, I I think that you know by embracing picture in picture, they would make the decision much easier for themselves. And then when they do that, we'll all complain that the screen is too cluttered. Why can't they just express <laughs> what's going on on, on the track? <laughs> but yeah, there's been a huge variety in opinions with the the listener comments, and I didn't realise how much of a a sort of a passionate response we would get. But it does vary. It does vary from just show me the race. No frills. I just need to see what action is happening on track. All the way to people who want it to emulate Ready Player One, where they can... Oh, I want 80% of my field of view taken up with information, and I think I can do that without having a seizure. Uh, well, I think we could do with less crowd shots. Oh, my goodness. Are we going there? Are we going to... <laughs> but that's... Okay, so that is very much a, a, di- a, a director's, director's choice. Tw- yes, it's... And, and, okay, here's what infuriates me. There's a very specific example, and it was Hamilton versus Bottas at Silverstone. So they're both still in championship contending uh, at this point. I think it might be 2020. So they go down the uh, Wellington Strait. 
under the bridge into one of the greatest complexes for wheel-to-wheel racing in the entire world. F1 at Silverstone into Brooklands and Luffield is... You must know that anywhere on earth you're going to see racing action, that and then into cops. And they come down the Wellington Strait, a move is happening as they're about to go into Luffield, and they cut away to a crowd shot. And you go, well... Like I'm, I'm sure the individual who did that loves their children and they're very nice and they always rewind the videotape before they return it to the rental store. But how can you be a motorsport director and cut away at Luffield on lap one between the two title contenders? Christian, I'm still so mad. I think it's important to get into the head of someone. But there's, there's a guy who's producing this show, right? And then he has a guy who switches the cameras for him. So all this has to be a story and you have to prepare something. As I said before, you have to prepare when do you do these and these dust. So when you put on the graphics, the sound guy knows you have to put in the <laughs> right. That's a great and sound. And then everything is working. I tried yeah. to do it from the left to the right. I don't know if it worked. It's probably a mono yeah, mic. Yeah, but it was v- that was V12 though. You need to update it. <laughs> Thank you very much. But still, it's um, uh, the, the guy producing his job is to have the overview overview. But when you're hands-on, you're maybe thinking more, well, it's been a while since we saw some fans. It's been a while yeah, since we... got a checklist. Probably not in the race as we are as viewers. At least as viewers, we are all in the race in 20 different ways, depending but on the, who we follow and stuff, right? Yeah. The, the structure of the directorial structure of F1 these days is that there are... There's not just one director. There are probably three altogether. The first guy is only concerned with following the cars and he's cutting, you know, to follow. He He's being told by the guy who sits above him, the producer, okay, we want to follow Hamilton. We want to follow Max. And so he's cu- cutting just the stuff on track, making certain that he's picking up those shots. The guy that's sitting above him is the guy that is saying, Okay, want to want to see Hamilton, and we're going to go to a helicopter shot now. So the helicopter shot gets cut in. Um, where, are we going to see uh, Hamilton come into the pit? So we'll go to the pit lane cameras. Sitting next to him, or is another whole team that are purely graphics, and they're deciding when the graphics are going to come up, what graphics are going to come up to support what's being shown on the on the. Um, on the broadcast so that's three teams and then there'll be a, a an overall you know executive producer or producer of the broadcast whose and job is department. to make certain oh there's a sound department yeah um spanners will hate me saying this and, you know, <laughs> oh, just the sound just the sound, sound. we forgot about the sound, sound. Well, the sound. Yeah, yeah, the the sound's just there it's always there you know never How worry about you. it <laughs> and if i can just um, add steve to to what you're pointing out when you have like a chopper in the air and the chopper is stand by somewhere, and it and we are like, and we're ready for the chopper. Three, two, one. When that is go, that is gonna overrule everything else. Mm-hmm. So you could have uh, Hamilton and Rosberg in corner four in Barcelona, <laughs> but if the chopper was on his way, you're gonna cut to the chopper, unless you make an executive uh, decision. And those executive decisions, the the overruling ones are the difficult ones to make. That is where you get like the, the strange feet somewhere where you're like, what was that? That is someone trying something. Uh-huh. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you, can't, you, can, you cannot go back on a decision. You cannot say, 
let's cut to the chopper and then cut back to track. Then it's sort of like it, it, it when when first you say A, you have to see B. Mm. I, I guess I, the, the secret is if you're following Hamilton on on the track um, and and you want to go to a, a chopper shot, make certain the chopper's got Hamilton in you know in in view when you cut to him, so that the the narrative keeps flowing on. See, there are two different things. There is the concept of showing the race, which is easy. We'll just show cars going around on the track. But there is another whole level to this, which is telling the story. And that's where a good director or a good producer earns his money because he is in tune with the story that is going on on the track, what's important and what he needs in order to be able to tell that story rather mm. than just show cars going around. Maybe you need a, a useful idiot. So you need me in the corner, someone who's just concerned with audio, Steve. Uh, someone who's like excitedly <laughs> just pointing at the screen so the director can quickly glance at me and when I'm jumping up and down screaming at Hamilton and Bottas having a fight into Luffield, he can be like, no, that's that's very clearly the priority. So you get all those technical arguments, Christian. I understand, or I'm pretending to understand all those technical arguments. But that you know, these guys are under pressure, obviously. But that's that's a clutch move. So making sure you catch the championship leaders going into Luffield, that is almost as high pressure a performance thing as the guy at the free throw at the NBA Super Super Cup. Yeah, Super but. The, the the as Steve says, I, I I totally agree with this. The the story is the most important. Don't you though? If you remember this uh, movie from I think it was the seventies, the onboard movie driving through Paris. What was it called? Oh, the, yeah, the Getaway that wasn't or something. That brilliant. That was just brilliant. Yeah, and that is just one onboard <laughs> camera, just low to the ground, going through Paris at four or five o'clock in the morning. Uh, maybe a little bit artificial sound, but that was just a story. That was just, you You felt it. Brilliant. And, uh, and here it you have 20 cars. You could do the same on uh, from 25 different directions, right? So they have all the tools to tell the story. And when you have so much, it, that makes it difficult as well. When you are constantly in danger of being overtaken by reality, just punching stories at you. So however you choose to tell your story, you're going to have to work with reality, right? And that, that makes it quite difficult, actually. And I think they are doing a brilliant job at it, uh, Formula One <laughs> doing this. It's one of those jobs, though, and I'm sure Steve will will know this. As uh, So we've got a good hybrid mix here. We've got producer Steve, we've got Christian, talent, me neither really, but a hybrid between the two. And, you know, that behind-the-scenes thing is no one will notice you until it goes wrong. So we're sitting here. I, I am willfully ignoring all the great work they did that day for this one cutting to a crowd shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. It, and everyone makes mistakes. Everyone thinks they've got the call right and occasionally will blow it. And Christian is dead right when he says, once you've made that mistake, you can't try and cover it. You've got to live with it and run with it and find the exit. Um and and that's just the reality of life, uh, and you know, that's why those people to, get paid money. I need to add something here because Spanos is always down talking himself. You <laughs> are the talent. You are the backbone of this podcast, and I've told you this maybe twenty times. Spanos, I love you. You are the best host on podcast, not even only from the one included. You're the only one on the panel who says nice things about me. Or no, I'm not. That. Everyone likes you, oh, and you. Yes. Honestly, I think it's about time someone told you. 
One well, out. thank you, and it's very enjoyable to do, and I don't know how to respond with that, so I'm going to awkwardly go to the <laughs> cricket analogy that was in my head, uh, which is basically what you're describing, Steve, is if you're going to slash, slash hard, which uh, yep. which I believe was an Aussie captain who used to say that. I don't know if it was... It, I don't know if it's Ricky Ponting. I think that might have been his, yeah. his phrase going okay. back. So he's going, if you're going to take a, a swing at the ball and you're not sure, make sure it's a hard, wild swing. Be committed to it. <laughs> so I am going to ask Steve to take us into the past. We've all been looking at some, some footage, which through video magic might appear here on the YouTube right now, of historic F1. Take us to the very beginning, Steve. What were the first F1 broadcasts like? Well, uh, camera work actually started before F1 was a thing. I mean, the, the very first uh, races started in Europe in 1900 to sort of 1902 and three, And those early races had camera coverage. And you can see it. You know, it's all black and white. It was pretty, you know, they just had some cameras on the side of the road and the Hay cars bales. drove by. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was occasionally a pan shot and you could see people, you know, at the finish line. But that's in 1902-03. I mean, the truth is that the development of the car and the camera kind of went hand in hand. And so the two things, you know, were complimentary. Together. Everyone yeah. loved seeing a, a car, even if it was only going at 30 miles an hour in those days. It was still a lot faster than a horse-drawn carriage. So you see the super, super early ones, like the pre-F1 ones where that you, you were talking about, and these, these things are... They're on wheels, and to us, they look like just like a horse and carriage, but without the horse. And yeah. but to the people watching at the time, it just must have been extraordinary to see these machines rattling past. And that's why they got big crowds in those days. I mean, it was a, a new sporting undertaking. No one had ever seen it happen before. Um, I don't know whether they had horse and buggy races back before the cars w- were around in those, you know, at the end of the 1800s. I've got no idea. But as soon as cars came around, there were car races and people flocked to them. That old footage shows crowds of people lining, dangerously lining these tracks as the cars come flying by. And it stayed pretty much like that up until the 1950s. The camera technology got a little better. It wasn't quite so flickery and grainy and nasty. Film stocks improved, but it was still basically single cameras. And the very first Formula One uh, Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1950, it was covered in basically the same way. They had two or three cameras around the track. They hand and watch the cars as they went by and then that footage was then developed and cut together a voiceover was put on it and they were turned into you know uh, basic uh, packages you know re- review packages various lengths i suppose i mean i suppose seven or eight minutes was about average um and they would have been shown on bbc uh, probably on the weekend sporting program. Um, and they were also shown at the cinemas, you know, in the um, newsreel um, packages that were put on before the main features. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, something I've noticed looking at that early Silverstone f- f- footage from the 50s, it was suddenly a step up. And this might seem really odd, but I still got that Grand Prix watching feeling when looking at mm-hmm. it. And I went, 
that is, even though it was hay bales and uh, unrecognizable cars and very much middle-aged men doing it. So I still got that feeling of Grand Prix and the you know royalty was there, the, the, the glamour was there. So we complain about old cutting to celebrities, but, you know, they were pointing to the, you know, the Queen's kid or whatever. You know what the difference was? That footage had a voiceover on it that was describing the story. The footage was backing up the story. It was adding context and excitement to what was being seen. That early footage, the 1900s footage, was just cars going by. There was no one saying, <laughs> and here comes, you know, yes. Joe Bloggs and he's, you know, 45, um, at 45 miles an hour and he's half a mile in front of, you know, the other guy. There was none of that attempt to tell a story. It was just showing. It was just showing cars going by. You know, by 1950, you know, filmmaking had had got slick enough so that when they showed the cars going by at Silverstone, they had someone telling us what the exciting part of it was, and the footage backed it all up. So I think the voiceover was the thing that suddenly, you know, jumped out at me. Yeah, and Christian was watching back then in the in the fifties. <laughs> you were just warming up for you. <laughs> I think I was born when Steve uh, was in his prime in TV in Australia. Actually, <laughs> should you, we do? You, Steve, we you do? must have gone through the like the, the biggest revolution, evolution oh. in in technical. I mean, you oh. were back there when everything was. I think it cost one million pound just to look at a camera. Yep, I uh, when I first started at the ABC, which was the uh, the Australian version of the BBC in 1972, it was black and white. Everything was black and white. They had videotape machines, but trying to do an edit on one of those two-inch videotape machines was pretty hard, pretty Steve, outrageous. did you have to cut it with scissors and then... St- and uh, then no, the- no. You, you, you could actually line up two videotape machines and you would use a sync pulse. You, you would uh, run it through and at the point you wanted the edit to happen, you would hit a button and that would put a sync pulse on the on the record machine. You would then run the two machines back, 10 seconds a piece, line them up and then manually hit the two start buttons together. And when the record machine read the sync pulse, it would cut to the, the input of the new videotape coming in. Okay. It took a long time to do any of that stuff. It wasn't like it is today. Who votes the the rest of the show is just Steve talking about the the olden days, <laughs> uh, uh, and and then and then a kid would would come in with a newspaper saying extra extra read the all extra. about it, and you have to redo <laughs> yep. your newsreel for the day. <laughs> okay, yep. well look. Um, so- I, I think I think Christian was right when he was trying to move you on to to, yep. to, to the Bernie era because okay. love him or loathe him, a Bernie Ecclestone probably I think unarguably is what thrust Formula One yep. into our into the national and international conscious. Yeah, just prior to Bernie, um, uh, uh, the the tele, televising of of um, Formula One, you know, uh, races were. Undertaken by each country, they did they did their own race. You know, there wasn't a lot of coordination between people. You know, BBC might get um, Italy's um, you know coverage they'd done, and they would show that during their sports program, whatever. In the late seventies, that be- well, in the mid to late seventies, that became a reality. Bernie, who was a um, a team owner in those days, realised that owning a team wasn't going to make him a rich man, and he wanted to be a rich man. So he started to organise the teams um, in to take – he could see that the broadcast rights, if you did this correctly, would be worth a lot of money. 
Um, so he organized the, the teams into an organization called FOCA, which, well, uh, excuse you know, me, FOCA, yeah, the F- Formula One yeah, Constructors right, Association. <laughs> Can I just oh. add something, Steve? Uh, yeah. It, it's uh, important to remember back then there was no deals. So one race would yeah. probably have something broadcasted, other races would not. And some That's right. races was a Formula One race, some was not, and no one basically knew. Yep, that's exactly right. Bernie saw that if if it was organised correctly, they could sell it to a world market, and he wanted to be the man that would do that. He he was the one that started to establish, uh, help organise FOCA. Uh, in a, 1974, he started, and that kind of gave the teams um, some clout. I mean, it, it eventually led to the signing of the first Concord Agreement, um, uh, we hear we hear you, that so much that word Concord Agreement, and I'm too I've been too afraid to ask what it is. Well, it's an agreement between um, the FIA and the teams about how the race seasons will be run, how uh, other ancillary things like media rights will be distributed, and where the monies will go from those. Um, who owns what in in terms I think of it's between FOM and the teams? Right, I'm not sure FIA is and the Concord is, are they. I think they were. I think they would. The first Concord agreement. Maybe back then, had, yes. Maybe back then, yes. Yeah, I think it, it may have changed. That there were two organisations. One was called FOCA, and one was called FISA, which was the pre-runner to the FIA. And it was when FOCA was set up. There was there was almost ten years worth of uh, arguments and um, toing and froing. Uh, between FISA and FOCA about who would, um, you know, have the rights t- to stuff and who who would be in control. Uh, FISA turned into the FIA and F- FOCA um, is still around now, but FOCA gave up most of its powers to Bernie and his companies, yeah. which were called FOPA, the Formula One Promotions Administration. But, but um, the, Yeah, but here's the thing, though. From a broadcast point of view, this is Bernie Ecclestone, like seizing power and then setting about going well how can i make money and, I, and i'm sure uh, the broadcast put part of that that is that's is a key element to it obviously th- that was the mo- most important one here's right. a here's a, a really interesting quote about bernie eccleston and how he did this and i quote anyone who has had a business sold it four times has never bought it back and has never lost control of it and still owns it, is pretty special. And you know the most important thing? He never freaking owned it in the first place. <laughs> that sounds that's, very Bernie-ish. No, okay. that's, that's, that's Eddie Jordan. Yeah, yeah, about <laughs> so Bernie. Eddie yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he never owned it. He, ne- he sold it four times, made a huge amount of money out of it, never lost control of it, but he didn't own it in the first place. 2001, early 2001, he did a deal with the FIA uh, that gave his company, Slick, the rights to the Formula One transmission rights for 100 years. It was announced in 2001. It didn't actually come into, you know, become active until 2010 when the the uh, agreement that was in place in 2001 came to an end and it was that agreement that Liberty ended up buying. 
So Liberty now have control of FOM, which has control of the, you know, the broadcast rights for Formula One until um, 2109. Um, It just seems pretty weird. And Bernie didn't pay all that much for those rights. You've got to remember that um, the man he was negotiating with was... um, uh, Oh, God, why am I having a... Uh, an old person. <laughs> but it's okay, um, you're doing very well. <laughs> who, <laughs> who was head of FIA before John Todd? That's a great question. Something that I would have to Google. I tell you what, everybody listen to uh, old uh, men Googling FIA. Max Mosley. Max Mosley. Oh, How could we forget yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got to remember that Max Mosley and Bernie had been, you know, in bed together, brothers in arms, since the 70s. I think that's the wrong analogy to yeah, use with Max Mosley. So. Well, that, well, considering well, well the, perhaps yeah. not the right. Yes, all right, no. perhaps yeah. that was wrong. But nonetheless, they had been uh, thick as thieves since the 1970s. Max worked for Bernie for many years in, in all sorts of ways, and it was at Bernie's um, suggestion that Max stood for... The, you know, the chief of the FIA. So with those two guys running, they ran the whole thing thick as thieves. And and then he onsold it to CVC and their partners who who eventually sold it to Liberty. Again, with Bernie's, you know, it was Bernie that set up the deal and all that sort of stuff. Of course, all the other deals during the early 2000s with EMTV and um, with Kirsch and those sorts of people, they left Bernie alone to run it. And he kind of figured that that would happen with Liberty too. They would come in, they would buy it, they would leave him to run it, but that didn't happen. Uh, John Malone, who owns Liberty, is a smart media operator and he decided he would do it his own way. Right, I want to get away from from the business side and onto some on-camera stuff because that stuff, Steve, must have you know, it has evolved like an awful lot. When you think of static camera positions and you've just got Billy Bob with a, 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 a cigarette hanging out of his mouth trying to track the cars as best he can, to now where there's almost complete coverage to helicopter shots, drones, cable cameras, like that evolution, I feel like I've seen that as a 42-year-old. In my lifetime, I've seen that suddenly explode. Yeah. It's it's huge these days. F one F one runs everything out of Biggin Hill outside London. That's where their main transmission centre is. They send one hundred and fifty people to every race. Um, their cameramen, sound guys, you know, data collectors, all that sort of stuff. All of that data is um, collected and sent back straight back to Biggin Hill. You know, for every session, Tata are there. Uh, uh, F1's, you know, data partner, and they have huge, um, you know, fiber optic cables going right around the world, and they send every camera output goes straight back to Biggin Hill and comes up on the monitor there, and that's where the directors decide how to use it. Um, for the figures I've been able to find is that, that it's about 150 people. There's between 30 and 40 4K broadcast cameras that go all the way around the circuit, and they're the ones that we see. There's 60 in-car cameras, 150 microphones, and they lay about 50 kilometres of fibre cables at every track. I mean, and then they've got to be pulled up and moved, so it's a huge, huge um, undertaking. Then they have 
our microwave antennas that send camera signals and data and all that sort of stuff, and they obviously set up a big media centre, temporary media centre. So it's centre hundreds and hundreds of people, right? So uh, that that's just that's just at the track. There's another yeah. 150 people back at Biggin <laughs> Hill. So there's you know for every race that there is about 300 people involved in getting the you know the camera signals out to the rest of the world. They come into Biggin Hill, they go through the process we talked about earlier, being produced, and then they're fed out to the um, the international feed that everybody takes for the race. So when we judge uh, something like Daytona 24, there's, there's no way they have that level of manning and resources. No, I wouldn't think yeah. so. I don't know exactly, but I'd be, you know, you've There's only got no to look way. at it to be able to tell, yeah. yeah, that they don't have that kind of, you know. So we definitely they have spoil. Radio Le Mans, right? They have this crew from Radio Le Mans, which is basically their entire content site, and then they just have a TV production from the infield of the Daytona. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you've got to understand that covering Daytona is a, a, a simpler process than covering most Formula Ones because it is basically, you know, an oval with a little infield thing. So the, the number of cables, the kilometres of cables you've got to run to get from the cameras back to the broadcast centre is less, you know, line of sight is easier, microphone cables not as far. All of that stuff is scaled down a lot. And the speeds we have in in data trans or data transmission these days don't uh, are, <laughs> are at a point where uh, where you can basically do this back home. Uh, you can have your sound department back home. You can have uh, everyone who's mm. doing the onboard stuff and stuff like that back home. So things are definitely uh, changing in in that regard. And oh, I yeah. think uh, and I think uh, we will see in the future probably more remote stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the next thing is that they'll send the cameras out and get text to set them up, and they'll all be operated from back in Biggin Hill. I mean, at the moment, right at the moment, the amount of data that is sent back during each race is 500 terabytes. That's a bucket load of data to be sent back in real time. They That's say half that for gigaflop, God. I don't know. I don't know computers. I don't know. Did Sorry. someone say gigaflop? <laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. Terrifying. They, they say that it takes six seconds from when something happens on the track for it, you know, to make its way back to Biggin Hill for the production process to happen and for it to be retransmitted to the That's rest of the world. Interesting. Six minutes. Six seconds. Six seconds. Six now seconds. we we all know that because we have our you know event ninety protocol when we're watching Formula One. This is so that people avoid posting immediate spoilers because people who do a stream tend to be about ninety seconds behind people who are watching it on cable or satellite. Mm. Mm. But that's that that's a result of you know the slack. Foxtel stream or the fact Slack Sky, what do you call it in Britain? What's their oh Sky you know, Go, Sky Go, yeah, yeah. Sky Go, yeah. Oh. That that's because you know their system is not quite up to the speed of of the actual Formula One one, but it's still pretty amazing. It's still you know six seconds happens on track. It's being transmitted to the rest of the world. What what we see nowadays is uh, we talk about 4K, 8K, we talk about yeah, graphics yeah. on screen and stuff like that. But I think what will uh, revolutionize the future is how we compress uh, uh, packages of data, which is, I know this is very unsexy, but when <laughs> when you film something, you have to turn that into a digital format and then you have to package it in a container, 
which is what yep. we call MP4 or whatever you, uh, you That's use. That's right, yep. Then you send it through data cables, uh, data cables, cables. <laughs> That's data <laughs> that data, data is getting exactly, to you. Yeah. Then you send them, then you have to unpack them and then watch them. That is also why your computer sometimes have issues with different formats and stuff. That is how the, the, the data is packaged. And that is going to revolutionize because those packaging formats are going to uh, get more and more intense and smaller and smaller and smaller. So you can send more and more and more. Uh, in the same lines you could before, but I also just want to add one uh, one thing that uh, Formula One uh, or Liberty uh, Biggin Hills uh, is doing that no one else is doing quite up to the task they are, and that is uh, a production crew with on-screen hosts uh, who are working well together. They are creative in how they perceive the sport, how they go about it, how they narrate their um, their communication from the track, how they tell their story. They are ways ahead of everyone. Well, I haven't seen the Australian Fox. I haven't seen the German, but I've seen the Danish. I've seen the Sky one. I've seen uh, the American one, and no one even reaches them to their socks. So uh, they don't even not only have the site, the product, the rights, the way to transmit it, they also have the crew to present it now. So mm-hmm. I think they are going to be a serious contender within a very short time frame. That is maybe five years. Okay, presenting. This is where I feel and empowered by my colleagues now to to say I'm an expert on. We have to remember that the the talent pool for for people who could do that very specific presenting job is is quite limited. It's the very top of a a, 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 a pyramid of talent, and I think you say. We've had loads of feedback here saying, I would replace such and such a person. Such and such a person is not a good commentator or presenter. If you took those people away and immediately went for the next train about to leave the station and put them in, you'd suddenly appreciate how good that previous person was. And I think one one really good example is uh, David Croft, who comes under a, a lot of fire from people, but he is so like technically a great commentator. Like, he's actually fantastic. He's an amazing voice smith. The amount of time he does it over the course of a weekend to keep it fresh, to keep it interesting, and you can argue about his excitement level if that is particularly to your taste. But he is technically fantastic. And if you were to just take away every commentator on uh, Sky, F1 TV, uh, the Danish, whatever's on the Danish one or the, the Dutch one, and, and have to replace them immediately, you would suddenly realise just how good those guys at the very, very top are. So I didn't include any of the listener comments of, oh, you should get rid of such and such a pundit or such and such a commentator, because honestly, th- these people are, I think, criminally underrated, Christian, in in that in that day-to-day skill of delivering that presentation. I totally agree. But I would add that um, the, in the past, you had, if you listen to Murray Walker, for instance, I know he's he's considered like the great, right? But he he doesn't know anything. He's it was it's just crap, <laughs> right? True. He's just guessing, so... and he's like, "What is going on? It has four round black things. It's it cold so tires." Fun. I mean, <laughs> it was so frustrating. He used to go always go. I know it seems like they're getting closer in the corners, uh, but actually, when they get to the straight, th- they'll get further away again. It's, yes, we exactly. know. We, we all exactly. we all understand that it looks closer in the corners, Murray. We're, we're and, okay. And that is, I think, Crafty is a good example of a little bit of. Uh, I know you love. Of him, Spanners, uh, but uh, he, he's he's sort of like the old school for me. He's very good at his, at his craft. He you can call uh, Crafty in the middle of the night and just put a mic in his face, and he's going to do it the same at the same level of professionalism. 
Whereas if you listen to Jonathan Palmer, uh, what's his Jonathan Palmer? No, that's a stat. Um, uh, uh, Jolian Palmer. 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 You listen to Sam Collins this, yeah. or you, uh, those guys. They, they, they have. I mean, their mindset is a little bit fresher, and I think uh, the new generation of fans, the Drive to Survive fans. They're going to adapt to the Formula One Liberty kind of vibe we more. Could, oh, we could do that. We could divert dream, dream comms pairings in the future. <laughs> so I, I don't yeah, I don't feel as strongly as that about David Croft. But with Murray Walker, I, I, I do agree with you. And he was fantastic. And, and now he's carved in stone the template for, for motorsport commentators. But when Martin Brundle paired up with him, I felt like such a sense of relief. It was like... Good, good. I'm, I'm, thank you, Martin. You know, Martin saved F1 commentary for me. So even though I can't stand the gridwalk, I will hear no ill because he, you know he's he's F1 royalty. Um, I've just got to, you guys mentioned DTS, and uh, although it's not you know actually transmitting a race, yeah. that is the biggest thing that has happened to Formula oh, One yeah, in absolutely. terms of media and broadcasting. You know, well, since the start of Formula One, it's the thing that has blown the top off the sport, brought in so many new people, uh, you know, fans introduced it to them. It is the the thing that has changed Formula One more than any other form of broadcasting, hmm. whether we like it or not. No, you're absolutely right, and and I think people are too very quick to dismiss. Oh, you're just a DTS fan. If you came into the sport because you were attracted by drive to survive and the characters and the the drama of it and then you still watched the races saw it was substantially different to how it's portrayed on drive to survive and you're still an f1 fan there's there's no gate for us to keep like you're welcome in uh, i think it's it's quite a good litmus test if someone dismisses you for being just a dts fan that is a good indication to you that that person really isn't worthy of of your your time to to debate with let's let's stop the drive to survive gatekeeping A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, I need to get this off my chest, though, because you mentioned Jolie and Palmer. 
obviously there's a lot of people waiting in the wings to take over as the next Murray Walker. But I can imagine five years time, Jolian Palmer as the Brundle for the for the main feed, and Alex Brundle as the main commentator. The only thing of that is I'm not sure that Alex Brundle realizes he's the David Croft Murray Walker guy yet. So obviously he does a lot of commentaries. I'm just I'm not. I think he wants to be the expert guy, which he could be, but I think he'll end up being the 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 caller. So there you go. That's my that's my dream F1 comms lineup for the future. Even though Jolian Palmer, the only time I've uh, spoken to him was on the BBC Checkered Flag p- podcast, and he yelled at me, and he was he was pretty mean. He yelled at me a lot. So did Andrew Benson. I'm, I'm going to change my opinion then. Okay, what are you changing it to? Yeah, I don't agree, but don't front on Spanners. I mean. <laughs> Yeah, we hate him now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, so um, I want to then, if whilst we're sort of talking about the 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 broadcast side, like the out and out picture side, maybe uh, just a couple of listener comments here. And I, I think I think this is a key one here from Ernst. It doesn't look like the cars go fast anymore because all cameras follow the cars through corners. Cars come right towards you on the straights. It feels boring. Stephen backs him up. It achieves the impressive feat of making the fastest part of the race with the fastest cars look like they're doing five miles an hour. What what do we do about that perspe- perception of, st- of speed, Steve? Well, I don't necessarily agree with them. Um, we could put, you know, just locked off shots and let the cars drive through the locked off shots. Um, but in order to be able to tell the story of the race... That's really not going to do it. That Those locked-off shots would have to be so wide in order to be able to see what's happening that they're not going to be particularly exciting. Now, I play. I have the same issue when I'm setting up um, iRacing for the missed apex thing. I go into a new circuit when we're going to do it and I strip the cameras that are there out and I build my own camera positions and... And I go through this same thing every time. And I almost always end up going with the zoomed shots because it is easier to be able to tell the story. Now, you can make a car go fast by using a narrow field of view. You can make it look like it's going fast, but you only see a very small small amount of what's happening. The narrower the field of view, the less you're actually seeing of the track, or if you if you're talking about a car that's mounted a camera that's mounted on a car, the narrow angle of view means that what you're actually looking at is a part of the track that's seventy five feet in front of the car, so it it actually doesn't have a lot of relevance to you know what's what the car is experiencing at that particular moment. Now it's a difficult thing. Part of the thing that makes them look slow is not that the camera angles are wrong, it's just that the cars aren't skidding all over the track like they used to. In the yeah. past, the car, the cars, you know, it was, um, you know, physical traction and, and mechanical grip that the cars used, not a lot of aero. So they were bouncing and turning and going through a corner, you know, that they look fast because, you know, they were small, they were not particularly stable, and they looked exciting. These days, they're glued to the track. So, yeah, the cars don't look particularly exciting, but I'm not sure that having locked-off shots is going to, you know, make this work. And the cars are buses, right? 
the cars are mm. like uh, the the red uh, double decker buses in London size wise and you, if you watch a race with big trucks uh, compare it to uh, go karts even though the go karts only drive half the, the the speed of the trucks the go karts will look faster because they're more f- uh, agile and moves around yeah. as Steve says that is one thing I think uh, generally we just have uh, it's it's uh, as you know Steve it's a uh, it's a giant task to get something to look fast if it's not uh, like rocket spaceship fast mm-hmm. uh, on television. So if you watch, uh, for instance, Daytona, that looks slow, right? <laughs> and then you have the the last thing, which is perception. So if you have like a DTS Drive to Survive, where all the cars are going Michael Mann style. <laughs> the if you have that every time. <laughs> Yeah, I, I work with sounds, and I have a mouth, and that You're is like the You're like that guy people. from Police Academy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, not quite, Spanish, but thanks. But, you know, if you build, like, a reputation on, on Netflix where all the cars sounds like they go faster than they do in reality, and then you turn on the race, and it's like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I think that ruins it, too. But, but I, I don't see it that way. I think it looks... Good still, and if you see see the uh, rouge shots and stuff like that, the Monaco shots, it's still. Oh, I said the Monaco word. I'm sorry, Spence. No, that's okay. Look, it's it's interesting to see Steve's perspective. So we do this with our iRacing uh, tournament. The first broadcast is going to be on February 9th. So I'll make sure to link to the motorsport broadcast channel, and it's really exciting to see you know what Steve picks and uh, and the choices you make. And in sim racing, there's there's shots that you can do that aren't available to tv camera crews yet and you and you use them so there's there's one that you are you argue with brad about which is i racing will let you have a, a view that follows the car directly behind and I, and I think i saw some red bull promotion thing where they actually put a tether to a to a camera and that is that's a great action shot if the formula one could have that they would have that yeah absolutely they mm. would that's you know, I mean, iRacing has one small advantage over F1 at the moment, and that is that you know, virtual cameras yeah. actually work. Uh, so it's the the choices for the camera crews are interesting in Formula E in the early seasons. Do you remember how painfully slow Formula E looked? If you're trackside, and I can tell you as someone who crossed a live track accidentally and then had the the pack whiz past me very shortly afterwards. That it was that was an alarming experience. These are very very fast motorcars, and I was really close to Degrassi and Buami crashing. And the, without the engine noises, the sickening crunch of of carbon fiber really got that speed across to you. Uh, but what they would do occasionally is have really static shots on a curb, and then and let you oh, see yeah. the cars thundering past. And F one does tends not to do that. Yeah, if if you put the camera down low on the track and let the cars kind of run over the top of it, then they look very fast. Um, and they do some some tracks allow you know they, that kind of camera placement, but they don't do a lot of it. I'll agree with that. But that's the one way you can make a car look fast in a static shot is make it low, and l- you can then have a narrow field of view so that the thing will pass through the, the field of view very quickly and and appear fast it's, it's the worst job as a camera operator though <laughs> <laughs> would you not would that not be an unmanned one you would you don't just yes, tell derek of course it is derek can of you lie down on the curb 
<laughs> go for it. Why, why me? Oh, you, you know why, Derek. I saw her looking at you at the barbecue. Now get out there and, uh, and do your, and do your worst. Uh, so we are some hour and uh, ten minutes into this broadcast show, and already I've identified little areas where I go, Steve. We. Can we just do a, a segment like specifically on drone cameras? You know, there, there's there's lots of breakout stuff with this, but there's one oh, specific yeah. question that I'm looking for that was a listener question, and if I can't find it, I am sorry. I will make up a name, but there was a question about the use of the drone. So I think it's Paddy. Ah, there we go. It doesn't need to be a first person view drone trying to take a corner while following a car so everyone feels like they've fallen over just some good close-up drone shots so something i think that is the difference between say a, a castle coon broadcast and f1 d24 are those drone and helicopter shots like they are some of the most spectacular shots in motorsport and if you can follow the action it's amazing but yeah we definitely don't need that one where we were all tilting you know, around the zandvoort banking or whatever no, no, no. Um, drone shots are great. They should be used for tracking alongside next to the to the track, primarily on a straight, watching two cars trying to, you know, tussle with each other as they go down the straight. If you've got a drone um, that can sit over, you know, what, 20 feet in the air or 30 feet in the air and look down on those two cars fighting as they run up the straight, that's a very exciting shot and it shows... A brilliant view because you can see the two cars the way that they're tussling with each other. Um, and for that reason, we use them in the iRacing drone shots. I love drone usage in that. Um, and once they you know, get the drones sorted out and they're controllable, and I understand that you can't fly them over the top of the track, you don't have to. You've just got to find the right place on the track to use them. Um, so, yes, I'm all for drone shots. I reckon that they will really improve the whole coverage. Uh, I've got a long-term plan uh, for, for Miss Apex, you know, karting events and series where we will have, have coverage. And obviously you and Ben helped me with this kind of stuff. But at stage one, I've bought my son a little mini drone and I've uh, been training him. And it's, it's, it's big for a mini drone, but it's a mini drone. So he's learning to be my drone camera operator for that and we did not realize how many laws there were around flying drones oh <laughs> huge amount and when someone showed me the laws i was just like reading through it going whoa boy we we did several crimes okay cool let's uh, let's <laughs> study this now so um, steve uh, thank you very much for that 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 history has set us up nicely and uh, i learned things and i think big and hill itself is something we could sit and try and get someone on who has experience of big and hill and, and sit and pick their brains. That could be a whole episode in itself. Mm, that'd be great. What about the future, Christian? Where where are we going in the in the future? I think um, the future is based on what the past was, basically, and it's all about rights. But I'm going to start somewhere else. If you look at the uh, the media landscape these days, you will hear all the big names like Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft. Everyone is just firing people. Microsoft just bought Blizzard, which is a, a huge gaming uh, company, and they basically fired one-third of the, uh, the, the people hired there. And it, we see this everywhere. I think, um, I think we have seen the peak in streaming content, uh, and it's only going to go down from here. And that really? is also why we see price hikes in uh, subscription models, and we see advertisement uh, introduced. So people are cashing in. Is that what you think now? Is the, this yeah, is the, well, the cow I'd, being milked. Yeah, it's been 
It's not been the most lucrative business up until now. It's been all about getting people to... Um, I don't know if you remember back in the days when the, the mobile phone was introduced. There was, at least in my territory, there was uh, this idea that if you could get people to buy a mobile phone, then you could hook them on the subscription, right? So mobile phone was basically for free. You could go and get the, like, the main uh, uh, 500-pound model for one kroner in Denmark. Uh, that is uh, one-tenth of a pound. Yeah, and it has a hole in the middle, so it's worth even yes, less. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and that is what has happened with the subscription platforms. And now we they, they've realized that there is no more, uh, and not everyone will survive. But it also says a lot about how what content is and how you get people to subscribe and give you money. Um, for instance, Netflix is uh, 30% less content this year than it was last year and it's more expensive so uh, as a customer you will be sitting there well, where do i use my money and this is going to be a huge fight and there is only one thing that you can be sure about is going to win you uh, subscri- uh, sub- uh, subscribers and interest and that is global sports rights and this is where Formula One comes in. Um, I'm going to give an example from America where, um, you know, Messi started playing for the MLS, yes, which is, is major league yeah. uh, soccer. Uh, and before Messi signed with Miami, uh, he was being told about in the negotiations with Apple. Apple basically bought the world's rights for MLS. So Anywhere in the world you want to watch MLS, uh, you go through Apple. You have to need to have a subscription and an MLS plan uh, on the Apple TV app, right? Uh, We've never seen anything like this before because Apple, a few executives and a handful of executives from the MLS basically just made this deal. And I've read interviews where some of the guys from MLS is just texting the guy, I think his name is Eddie Q from Apple, is why is the standings from the MLS not on the app web? And he's like, well, we'll fix that. Then two days later, is there. This is completely new territory, right? This, is, this would never have happened in the Viaplay or Sky days. That would take half a year just to get in contact with that guy. So uh, I, think, um, I think probably the hottest uh, item on the streaming market right now is uh, Formula One and probably made, uh, Champions League, but still Formula One is more. It's world. It's 24 times a year, and uh, it's only going in one direction still. Wow. This is, well, okay, is it go- going in one direction? I mean, this is going to delve back into the business side, which I don't want to sort of dive back too much into. But the base you had... Uh, when Liberty took over Formula One, sure, yeah, is still expanding, right? And we definitely we saw an influx uh, from the DTS series and stuff, which was unnaturally boosted. So, but we still see new people adapt Formula One, and it's the youth, it's the people you want to adapt because they're going to stay for the rest of their lives, and their kids are going to adapt as well. So, th- this is just a different story. Uh, what I see coming, and I have no idea, I have no insight, I don't know Eddie Q from Apple, I don't know any of the people in, in Formula One, 
but uh, there's a reason why everyone's so unhappy with uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salem from saying Formula One is Formula One is not worth what was it twenty million or oh, two yeah. million whatever he said. Yeah. There's a reason for everyone being so unhappy about that. That is because this all these things are going on in the background these days, and the value of Formula One is going to decide the price. MLS was bought for two billion. Okay. But, but this is the thing you're you're agreeing with with what I was sort of trying to say out loud, which is ultimately Liberty are now entering the milking the cow phase, and that there, there will be a sale price at some point. Definitely, I'm not. I'm, I don't see. I mean, I has, there's no one else around who's done what Liberty has done with Formula One. They have basically they have basically made it better in every way. With you can't really see anywhere where you feel like well. Yeah, that's me as a customer who's paying the price. Maybe it's a little pricey, but still, I mean, you pay a hundred, hundred and fifty uh, quid for a year of Formula One. That is cheap compared to what you had to pay for for Sky or whatever. Uh, they are gonna juice it. They're gonna pump up the price once you're in there, and all the same things that everyone else. But I have seen no signs yet uh, that they do not understand their customer at least that they are uh, not reading their customer, where in in the old days, no one read the customer. They only read the numbers at the end of the year, the budget, right? Well, I, I probably would uh, disagree with some of that. Let's I hear think it. That, fight, fight, fight. I, I think that Liberty um, run the risk of um, making Formula One so expensive that they are going to lose um, followers. You, you made the point that, you know, DTS has brought a lot of people to the sport and it did it brilliantly, you know, through production values and showing drama. Some people would say building drama that doesn't exist in the DTS programs. Um, That's not Liberty, and, though, and, I just want to say. Well, Liberty are paying the bills. Yeah. You know, Netflix are doing the production. Well, Box, Box, Box Now Productions, is that what it's called? Uh, who actually make it? Yeah, my my point is that DTS sucks people in. They want to get involved in the sport. Then they find out that it's not the way that it has been portrayed in DTS. And not only that, to actually go to any one of the uh, Formula One races these days, they've got to go and mortgage the house, sell their kids, um, because Liberty have bumped the prices up unbelievably. Now, they have done this very drastically, and they've done it in particularly nasty ways. Now, I, you know, we'll be a little... I sh- we won't go into this, but um, Liberty and Ticketmaster and Live Nation, both of those companies have long histories of uh, ripping people... Well, my opinion, <laughs> ripping ripping people off, you know, that's my opinion only. But it's also the opinion of um, the American Department of Justice and, you know, their corporate yeah. people there. They've, they're taking them to court because of the way that they sell tickets, because of the way that they uh, don't look after the people that buy tickets. Now, that is is now being transferred to the Formula One area. And I, uh, I know just from the feedback from our people in our Slack group, um, a lot of them go to a lot of races, but they are now beginning to complain because the value isn't there anymore. Um, what they get when they get to the races isn't what they've been sold. It, 
and isn't uh, what they want, um, you know, as uh, yeah. people who are going to um, sure you know, do it. Now, my, my one last thing is you said that, you know, these drive to survive people, it's, you know, it's their children that are going to, um, you know, be the future of it, of, of the sport. But what percentage of those children, how many of the people that have been bought in by Drive to Survive will end up then once the, you know, the glossy, you know, first thing has worn off, will go back to watching NFL or NASCAR or basketball or soccer or whatever. So so making, you know, you can't make great, you know, huge sweeping statements about you know how many millions of extra viewers we'll have. We don't know. Sad. There was some. There was some concern last year that the viewership was beginning to drop off. Well, sadly, I I don't actually think the viewership of Formula One dropping off is a major concern. And, and this is where I agree with Christian slightly because if you can charge more for your ice cream, then you can get away with with selling less ice cream. And unfortunately, this is a model we have seen with gaming franchise sizes an awful lot anyone who's played the far cry series will know they built up a lot of goodwill through the first three or four and then suddenly everything was uh, uh, pay to win and you had to you know, buy extra packs and downloads in order to be able to get extra hit points and kill the enemies so at some point if you see a product alienating its fan base you know that they're making money and that there's an end game. So ultimately, we are kind of, you know, we are relieving ourselves in the wind because it's all blown back. We're sitting there going, but but why don't they care about my my specific thing that I think is good? Why are they putting me off? Because me as an individual, as much as I complain, I'm still paying. And there's enough people paying until they get to their exit point. Uh, and and that's where I think you're 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 correct. Is that that's what we're seeing. We're going to get less. We're going to pay more for less until this cycle concludes. Uh, I just want to add that uh, Formula One is the Beyonce JC <laughs> on the uh, streaming market right now on offer, right? And it's for sale. And no one has bought it yet. So uh, that that is going to change stuff. I, I'm not completely into the DTS. Uh, I think DTS is going to be not as popular this year. Uh, we also already saw a decline last year. I think people adapting to Formula One are, are getting... Uh, adapted to Formula One as it is as a sport. But anyway, let me just put one last point on on the future of Formula One, uh, and that has to do with Apple as well. They this week they released their uh, uh, their glasses. Their, they they don't want us to call them VR, but it's basically VR. VR. So yeah. imagine imagine next year's season Formula One. You buy these glasses. Season starts, you choose which car you're driving, you choose which perspective you're watching yeah, from. Yeah. I'm just saying that is the future. Augmented. He's son of a gun. Uh, I'm, I'm in. But look, it's not all bad news. It's, it's, it's good. If you're an F1 fan, you know, we've lived through F1 being boring. We've lived through Formula One being unpopular. We've lived through begging for teams to join. And we've lived through begging the Americans to go, it is cool, we promise. No, I. but six cars, that was still good. I mean, they were still six really cool cars, weren't they? So, you know, we go through these cycles. And at the moment, we are, we're in the cool gang. Yeah, and there might come a time where it bleeds off and it, again, becomes a little bit more of a, a niche sport. But it will always survive. F1 is so strong at its core it's the thing that we love and we are going to be here 
for for a long, long time. And maybe as it dips off, there'll be slightly uh, less podcasts for us to compete against. So, you know, there's a plus side uh, for everything. That is the end of the show. Feel free to tune out. But if you don't mind, I'm going to take another 15 or so minutes. Don't complain. Oh, that's not F1 related. Because that's the point of Meet the Panel. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to set myself a time limit here, but I'm going to flip-flop between you two fine gentlemen. Now, we've got a strange generational thing here where oh, we will do it. We can be big boys. We can say our ages. How, how old are you, Uncle Steve? Um, I'm almost 70. Oh, 69. Nice. Okay, 70 years old. Nice. Uh, Christian, how old are you? Look at this. We're still school children. How old are you, Christian? I should say 420, right? But I'm, I'm 52. 52. So we go, we go from 69 to 52 to then 43. We have a weird phenomenon here because I spent a lot of time in Denmark as a, as a kid and, and in the 90s. So I'm pretty sure I will have watched Christian on TV doing like pop chart shows. And it's as a kid, Christian, you probably watch stuff that Steve produced in America land. So we've got this tower of old... Well, it's not a full circle. It's more like a line. It's more... Yeah, it's not a circle. True, uh, so, true, true. <laughs> so uh, let's start. Let's start with the more glamorous end, away from those darkened, pale people in production like Steve. Uh, but Christian Pedersen, you're great on the show. You're outspoken. You are. You've broken the beat machine many, many times, and we always get loads of positive comments when you're on. People, mostly in the English-speaking world, will be completely unaware that in the '90s, you know, you were a a, a TV personality. And at what level? of personality were you at you were talking to me earlier about you know the experience of just wandering around on public transport like you were a legitimate danish celebrity uh, it is very difficult for someone like me who's not really interested in the attention when it comes down to it to answer nice. that question but uh, i was i've been paid for signing autographs if, if that makes sense like <laughs> sitting in a shop just with yes. people queuing up for autographs that kind of famous but you know, it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> That's there's always a big, there's it. always a bigger fish. Yeah. Can... Well, uh, do you want me to just go through uh, yeah. quickly why why it was? Uh, why I mean, are you I, the I, ant or deck of Danish uh, TV? And, uh, I use I, I just loved radio back in the day. As you do, Spanners, the yeah. the the, That's the, the, dream. the the media basically, and that led me to do TV. And I worked and on something was called Set TV in Denmark and Sweden and Norway, which is basically our version of MTV. That was back when it was satellite TV. And I did a, that was how I learned to do TV, or you could say, learned not to do, how not to do TV or however you put it. I did three hours live at a time. So you broadcasted live for three hours and I did it all with my earpiece open all the time. So I learned a lot from that period. Uh, And then I went on to the national TV station and I did um, a show called Pulse or Pulse in English, which was uh, youth, uh, music, TV. And this was just, this was like uh, 96-ish, and that was before the internet. I actually, I think I was the first TV host or media person in Denmark ever to do uh, a thing on the internet where you can write me. And that broke the internet at the time. <laughs> so the internet in Denmark just went down, basically. And if you, uh, uh, if you, if you check the show notes, and you do have to, I, I did find 90s footage of oh Christian on TV with your blonde tips. And it is everything you're imagining right now. And if you think of Ryan Seacrest 
uh, in America yeah, or that, yeah. uh, in the UK. I'm trying to think who was our equivalent. Uh, could it have been Philip Schofield? But you were like the it's like the people like lead cheerleading the youth into what they're supposed to be enjoying. Yeah, but back then when you didn't have internet and you only had this like a couple of national TV stations, things was just only produced for the for the grown ups, right? We did something for the youth. We 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 uh, had different kind of uh, hair color every week and uh, <laughs> yellow glasses and said all the things the, the grown ups didn't want us to say. And uh, the grown-ups thought uh, thought of us as uh, stupid, but I mean, look at us now on the podcast. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but that's but, interesting I mean, that you uh, ended up on TV sort of almost accidentally because, like, like you, I always like radio is my my big passion. And if you're listening to this on Monday, I will already have been back at a fairly you know modest level. But yeah, be, being back on on radio is like it, a part of me is fulfilled and. Uh, it was that the dream from the outset was you know being that announcer having that voice having the proximity effect into the microphone and the headphones that i don't think people realize how much of a dream that is for some people yeah well in the 80s i it was the american uh, the power power fm uh, that that kind of sound right where they just just sounded so cool when the americans presented a record and then you had to do it in danish like here come a Beyonce made news to single. I said something in Danish uh, in a strange way. I'm, but I'm, it, I'm, re- I'm guessing it's related to Beyonce. But yeah, they've, was, they've got their was. power voices. They've got all the effects on. They've got their exactly, radio sound. Exactly. We all wanted to sound like that. But then when you work with music and, and, and you, you broadcast yourself, it just basically builds. And I love TV as well. It's uh, You don't have that uh, sound or that visual barrier. You you can do something in TV, and there's a lot of things you can do in TV. But it just... I just um, I mean... You know how it is. Once you get into it, uh, people get interested. And I think I peaked around like uh, the millennium, the year 2000. I hosted the Grammys with uh, someone called Casper here. Uh, and um, and after that, I just, no more. I don't like this publicity. What, what? So I started, uh, sorry? What didn't you like about it? So look, we are talking about, with, on a national level, we're talking legitimately about fame. You getting stopped on a, on, on boats for, for people to want to speak to you. It would have been selfies if uh, cameras but back then you know they had to set up the guy with the tripod and you know the single flash bulb and the guy that puts the hood over so it was a whole, whole big process then but we're talking about like you know genuine celebrity like at first how do you deal with that level of attention and then you get to the point we go well i just don't want it anymore how long does it take to dissipate that's interesting well i was the kind of type who uh, when people are like you're an idiot just for no apparent reason that's how people react to famous people apparently uh, <laughs> i would always take like the the, the debate why do you mean that what what oh, do you base that street, on? In, in the street. I mean, and that yeah yeah, <laughs> and you know uh, you don't get far with that. Well, usually you get into very good conversations because ninety nine percent of all people are really nice people when it comes down to it. But just having to deal with that, oh, I just oh, I just hated it basically. And, and in uh, the street, so people would come up in the street and go, "You're an idiot, you blonde tip loser." I remember once I went to, uh, we have sort of like, you know, Roskiller Festival here. You have uh, festivals in, in England as well, uh, Glastonbury's kind of stuff. We have one in in Newland called the uh, Smoke Fest, Beautiful Fest. Uh, I remember I was there with one of my friends and I just entered like the, uh, the, the, the public area and then someone just, uh, and half a chicken landed in my face, right? And this is what, what? you have to deal with. And then someone just saw me just, Felt like I should have his half a chicken in my face. 
Uh, and that is just how people are. And I uh, I just didn't want to deal with it. Also, we are, Denmark is a small country, only five, six million people here. So even if you're like the most famous here, you can't make a living of that. You only pay the price for being famous. So well, if I was yeah. in the UK and being famous, that would be a different story because then you could basically embrace it and, and go like, well, I pay the price, but at least I get paid for it. I think it was Luke Goss was talking about being part of the the. Bros, the band Bros. Are we talking about Bros? Yeah, well, I you know, you, they are my fa- my idols. When will I will I be famous? Exactly. And they they lost all their money, and they, so he was famous and skint. So the, the worst exactly. possible combination. So Steve, it's not. I think you're wise to have lurked in in the background. Obviously, you've you've worked with your fair share of of Christians. What what was your TV work? Because you actually you've spent time in America doing TV stuff. Yeah, that was making music documentaries um, through the early part of the eighties, but the, primarily for sale for sale back here in Australia. Um, and so you got Australia, a lot of crossover Zealand, with Christians, so you had to deal with like some some young blonde tipped idiot to to be your um, talent. Yes. Um, <laughs> Prior to going to America, I had I had made a lot of um, youth music programs or music slash comedy programs um, that were shown here. Um, English viewers will, older viewers will remember the Kenny Everett show. Well, the Kenny Kenny Everett show was kind of where we got our inspiration from. You know, it was crazy comedy animation animation bits and. Um, and bands, um, and then I did a country music series, and then on top of that, we did kids programs and magazine programs, and I mean just about anything. You know, at the ABC prior to that, I'd done documentaries and drama, um, and then w- went to America in the early eighties and made these music documentaries. Came back to Australia in the mid eighties and got involved in the advertising agency world. Ah, that's interesting. Making, so, making uh, commercials, yeah. And, that, and see, um, advertising, uh, my family in uh, a part, unknown, uh, not too far from you, actually, uh, into advertising. And seeing that world where it's a lot more campaign-based, uh, you will see the project through from conception to delivery mm. in a much shorter time frame and see that creative process kind of unfold in a more dramatic way. And I suppose a lot of those adverts are have room to not be perfect and room to fail in a way that, say, a... Uh, um, a movie might not, so that the 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 quality varies a lot on adverts. Is what I'm trying to say. Uh, that de- it depends totally on the budget. You know, I mean, I've uh, I've spent I've spent half a million dollars making one television commercial. That's a you know a shitload of money. Oh, excuse me, that's a bucket load of money. Ah, but I've also you know but you I've also Jono. made. <laughs> I've, I've, I've also made television commercials for you know a few thousand. Um, you've, it depends on you know what the client has, what the situation is. Uh, that's part of what intrigued me about that whole thing was how you had to be able to be incredibly versatile, you know, and and be able to move with you know with the, with the flow. I mean, I've got to say that it it didn't take me long to get fed up with advertising agencies per se, uh, you know, that's 99% BS and not a lot of creativity. So right. I I got out of there fairly quickly and set up my own production company. I was going to say, does that feel fairly soulless sometimes? Like, like that is price work, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and uh, yeah, 
it is fairly soulless, I've got to say. Um, During COVID, you know, and, uh, when all my stuff just collapsed and I thought I was going to have to go back to engineering, and I, I, I then found, some, found this tapped-in market where it was it was advertising stuff, basically, so real estate in the Middle East. Uh, are you looking for your house in in, in Diria? Come on, blah, blah, blah. And also, I think I was the voice of Stevenage Steel for, for a little while. And all that kind of price work, you know, you pick it up and put it down almost in a day. And things like language learning, the cat says, meow, you need to go to the doctor's. That'll be a thousand pounds, please. It was for America. And uh, so that kind of price work, Steve, like the passion it, it isn't always necessarily there. No, but if you're trying to do a good job, um, you know, there's oh, a I certain wasn't. amount of pride, pride and passion, you know, <laughs> that is always there. And yeah. I like to pride myself that, you know, everything I tried to do, I tried to do to the absolute, you know, best of my ability and make it work, you know, artistically and f- from the point of view of generating <clears throat> a result for the for the client. Now, I'm probably deluding myself somewhat with that statement. I'm sure there are, you know, well, I know there are projects that, you know, by the end of them you just I wanted to be out of there as fast as I possibly could. Um but that's just you know life, and that's that's everyone's life. You have days like that. But, but now you have is... the flexibility of your own production company, which is good because that means we uh, we get to have you on board as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, getting to my age, I'm winding that down a bit now. You know, <laughs> I'm trying to take it a little bit easy. I've I've had enough with arguing with people about you know. <laughs> Arguing with clients about one thing or another about what they um, think they want and what they told you, you what uh, they wanted. You see, that's a whole different ball game, yeah, mm. and most clients don't know what they want. And you know, the first job that you go through uh, in that situation is trying to get them to understand, you know, to, to realise what they want, and that's the first thing. You're not just reacting to them; you've got to make certain they un- actually understand what they want. So yeah. you've got to, you know, research it and drive them to the point where finally that will give you a brief that is achievable and realistic. And this, this is why I love, be happy with. I love speaking to these guys and why I'm glad we've had the space to do the meet the panel stuff over the winter. So you kind of get an idea of when Steve's talking about the broadcast, he, he's got that hands-on experience of having had to deal with you know, people and having to deal with clients and deliver that product. When Christian is talking about some of the stuff on the broadcast, Christian knows what it's like to have the camera in your face and have it say, you know, let's go, let's go live. Is that what you prefer, Christian? If I could give you, I said this to Brad, I said infinite money, but with you, it's infinite contacts. What are you doing with your world? Are you live in front of a camera? Um, I'll tell you why I'm doing this with you first of all because i like you guys and i think you're doing it the right way and stuff but it's also to get sometimes just a sense of being live that is something Mm. you will uh that is addictive that is like uh going on stage performing or something like that the the feeling of live is just awesome and i've done the most and i'm gonna use the uh, almost use the s word as steve did earlier i'm not gonna say it but people know which word it is shows during my lifetime <laughs> yeah. only to get like that live vibe because yeah. it makes me feel alive <laughs> i can't describe it in another way yeah i i'm totally with christian there is nothing there's no drug better in the world than doing live media live television programs it is just the best thing and if i had my choice about what i was going to do for the rest of my 
life, it'd Agreed. be doing live TV. And that's, Agreed. you know, the, the reason I enjoy working with um, Mist Apex because of that live <laughs> feel that is there. And we, we're saying all this on a pre-record. But that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just because... It feels in the, live. In the, we, we, uh, Sundays, obviously, are all taken up by Mist Apex. So over the winter, the pre-records just take give a little bit of family time on the weekends. So that's one thing. But it's so weird, Christian, as a presenter, you'll probably get this. On a live, I will pretty much nail it every time. Yeah, you know, uh, and on radio, I never, I don't fluff my intro on the radio. I'm straight in there. I do the show. If you give me a prereq, ten, twenty attempts, and exactly, I, don't, I don't know yeah. what it is. There's something Same about with me. there's something about that live. You know, the mic is live. The red light is on. That just tightens everything up. You're in the clutch. I think that is basically the essence of what we're talking about here, because. You 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 use another part of your brain when you do live than if you do pre-record. It's it, it's like uh, what controls your mouth is you when you know you can't undo it. There's no edit. It, yeah, yeah. That's just it's another way of uh, broadcasting yourself basically. And I think what you're using when you do that is it's a combination of pressure and ex- expectations, and everyone's looking at me, and I have to perform, and also have to say the right parts. All those things combined is mm, a drug. Yeah, I, I, so we're doing a mix of it now because I because I'm also a producer, so I really enjoy the production side. When we do these pre-records, I will spend hours, and once I recognise, oh, I, I can change Christian's uh, voice slightly, I will then spend the hour to to change that to get rid of say some room noise or something. And I'm sure Steve, you're the same. As soon as you go, oh, but this would look better if that background had. I don't know, a different luminosity, I will spend the 45 minutes to go through and fix that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've done it plenty of yeah. times. Don't you worry. But when it's live, there's a, yeah, we got it. It's that, I don't know why your, your brain is more accepting because you know you've set it in stone, you've set it in motion, and that's what you've got, I guess. Yeah, that'll, the secret to good live is good planning. You plan the shit out of it and then you do it live. Yeah, so that you don't, you know, if you have some grumpy old Australian swearing. Do you know what? Jono did it as well. So I think it's culturally insensitive to beep out Australian swearing. So from now on, we we just, uh, we we have to leave that in. If that's the worst that we say, I wouldn't be worried. Yeah. 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 So I'll I'll put the question to you then, Christian. In fact, because you've done so much, a post, to me, the most interesting thing is being the, 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 almost teen pop sensation in the tv series how i met your mother when it's revealed that robin had a secret past as a canadian pop star that's how i felt about you when i found out about all this you know tv stuff it was like no way so but from that then you're you know superstar dj you've done racing you've done directing production what is that area what of those things has made you go yeah that's me that's where i feel like i'm in the right place at the right time Mm, I think the answer would have to be what I'm doing now, right? I mean, um, as we all know, with age, uh, we tend to turn down or just do less of what we don't like and more of what we like. Uh, and currently, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm actually going back to making music. and I will release my own music this year. Actually, it will be up today or a week from today or something like that. Uh, Els Krell from Pulse, uh, which was my uh, nickname in the media back then, right? And and then I just finished a documentary about a Japanese-Danish fashion uh, design studio, which actually helped save the black alpaca in Peru from extinction 
through their fashion products. And I've uh, directed that documentary. You couldn't think of any original ideas. You know, you had to go with that tired old Danish Japanese <laughs> alpaca trope. You had, to get, you had to retread that path. And then I'm going to start sim racing <laughs> as soon as Fanatic gives me a wheel. Wait, that's stop. all. A, excellent. I'm looking forward to you joining in with the Mist Apex iRacing entry links in the show notes below. Uh, what what racing do you? What racing have you have you done then? Because Danes are generally you're, you're too big for racing normally. Um, the you mean real life racing or sim yeah, racing? Yeah, well, well, I I class them all together. Real real uh, racing. I had my used to have my own card, but I've done a lot of like uh, racing on TV. They did a show. I think I've been on it like six times. Uh, called Tiola uh, Race back in the days and Fifth Gear and stuff like that, where you race with right. other celebrities. Uh, I learned so much from being on that show because you drive in rallycross cars, in dirt tracks, and then tarmac, and the cars are ruined, and and you have crazy so cool. celebrities driving into you and stuff like that. So that was base. Uh, and once actually, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell one thing I've never said before, and this is Formula One related. Nicholas Kieser, who used to drive for Jordan, right? He was uh, one of the guys uh, teaching us how to drive on one of the shows. And how to qualify for the race, you had to go get into your car with your partner. You, was always, you were always driving with a partner. And then you set off, and then 10 seconds later, Nicholas would start in his own car. Uh, he had a bigger car. He'd driven the track numerous times. I'd never driven the car, never driven the track, and he couldn't catch me. Damn straight, and he's gonna <laughs> deny it. But, but then it they had they had yeah. to redo it because they forgot to give me the safety harness on for the neck, and I hate that. So it was never shown to anyone. Well, we're gonna have to explore that. We're gonna out him. We're gonna see if we can get. Let's uh, do it. A confession. So I, I love the trope of the the nineties TV star coming out with a, a new. Is it going to be a hit record or is it aimed at like no? TV it's kids? Uh, you, you're not going to like it. It's a strange soundtrackish electronic ambient dark ambient uh, very very uh, moody music i want it <laughs> i want it and i want it to be a i want you to anything that ends up on the cutting room floor we'll use it for, for outros and and bumpers uh, and steve finally from you a thank you from me uh live here is that uh you took the missed apex video you looked at it you messaged me you called me a, a moron and you, you dragged us to a level of professionalism, which I think when other people have found us, they've gone, how are these guys set up with a, a set and a green screen and lighting and we can see it? And this is at a point where, you know, a lot of YouTube stuff was harder and, and that sort of set us apart a little bit. I feel like part of it was you, I was so bad that I annoyed you enough to fix it. And, and for that, I thank you. And apologize. That's all right. I'll do it again next week too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was an ongoing thing. He does do it every week. Um, so, Steve, from a career point of view, obviously 69 is like a normal, completely normal retirement kind of age. But you look at people like you, like me, uh, like my, my wife, you know, people who are creative and, and freelance, there's never really that retire button. You're, because your passion is is video production work you're probably going to keep doing it and until a higher power uh, decides otherwise well if i had my druthers now i'd find out a way to get rid of the tinnitus that i have in my ears that gives me you know <laughs> I, I have very bad noise in my ears 
and I'd go back to, I'm, I've been a musician all my life. I got into video through music. I wanted to be an audio producer. I've played in bands all my life. I've made eight CDs, written you know, all the stuff, played most of the instruments on them. Um, so I'd go back to, if I could get clear my ears up, I'd go back to doing music again in my dotage. We're going to find some footage. I know you've sent me some footage of you playing guitar. I'm pretty sure I've got it. I'll, I'll see if I can dig that up. Steve, Amy, thank you so much. Uh, you lurk in our Slack chat. That's the only place you can find you on social media. And That's right. as always, we'll give out Christian Pedersen's home address and we'll link to some 90s TV. Thank you very much to the crew. I hope you've enjoyed us talking about F1 broadcasting. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Mistake Apex Podcast. 